Good morning. I am so very glad that you're here on this most surprising of American holidays, Labor Day, where precious few labor and everyone enjoys the day. Absolute favorite. I hope you enjoy the long weekend. And this morning, I'm very happy to be with you again in the Gospel of Luke. If you'll open your Bibles there, please. For those of you who are hoping to connect to the internet, it's down. <laughs> Try not to be too disappointed, folks. They have these amazing new inventions. They're called books. <laughs> Doesn't run out of battery. Can't crack the screen. It's absolutely wonderful. So if you need a Bible, if yours won't operate for whatever reason on your device, Please help yourself to, uh, to one near you. There should be one in the chair near you. I'm in Luke chapter 11, and there is no topic that any Bible teacher or Christian author or pastor or preacher could address that more quickly humbles honest people than what we're talking about today. Because today we're talking about prayer. I'll share with you in this sermon how God has dealt with me about my prayer life, the things He's taught me this week. Some of them, have been, they've all been amazing. Some of them have been a little bit painful. But in Luke chapter 11, we find Jesus at prayer. And the disciples ask Him something. It's the only thing in recorded Scripture that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. That's pretty amazing when you think about it, because in all of his beautiful, sinless life, public and private, Jesus did astonishing things. Because he was the one that God had promised, he is eternal God, now become a man. And he has the character and the power of God in him because that's who he is. So the disciples that were near him have watched him do absolutely astonishing things. They've seen him do time and again things that only God can do. And one thing in Luke's gospel that we see is that Jesus is continually at prayer, and perhaps that is why the only thing they ever ask Jesus specifically to teach them is to pray. More than any of the other Gospels, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than any of the other Gospels, Luke wants to show you that Jesus is at prayer. Before he is even born, as Luke begins his Gospel, prayer is already mentioned. Luke alone tells you in Luke chapter 3 that when Jesus is baptized, he's praying. In Luke chapter 6, Luke tells you that Jesus went away from the disciples and prayed all night. Then he came down the mountain and walked among his many disciples and chose from them the ones we call apostles. Luke alone tells you that Jesus is praying before he turns to the disciples and asks his famous question, who are the crowds, who do the people saying that I am? Luke alone tells you that Jesus takes the core of his disciples, he takes the three that are nearest and dearest to him, and he takes them up into a mountain specifically to pray, and there they see Jesus transfigured before him, seeing for a moment the glory of God, which had been veiled by his absolute, true, pure, ordinary humanity. 
And when you talk about prayer, people's minds go in all kinds of different directions. Let me make it as simple as possible. This is deep stuff because you're talking about God. You're talking about God's will and purposes and promises. You're talking about the deepest thing that anyone can have, which is a personal relationship. Have you noticed how deep personal relationships are? Does anybody here have a simple personal relationship in your whole life? They're just, they're not available, right? Imagine having a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Let's keep this very simple. Prayer is simply speaking to God to the God who is actually there. Many people the world over, it is a natural human impulse to pray. But the record of the Bible you're holding, written across 1,400 years by some 40 different people in three different languages, tells you through its very structure and nature that it is telling you the truth. Because it's impossible to put a book together across 1,400 years Fill it with promises and descriptions, not only of reality, but descriptions of the future, and have it all make sense and have it all come together. Imagine that we're trying to put a book together by, by committee, by, written by 40 different people, that we're going to publish sometime in the year 3500. That book wouldn't make any sense. The people who began writing first would know nothing of and have nothing in common and say nothing like the same things that the people that were writing at the end. And yet, Scripture does because God is telling you His story. All kinds of people pray, but there is an actual God who is there. A common misconception among people is that if you just say words into space according to your own understanding, some force or person or energy in the universe will somehow listen and help on your behalf. It's a nice thought, but it's untrue. Scripture says there is one God, and He is the God who is actually there. And prayer tells me something astonishing about Him. By His invitation, more than that, by His instruction, I am told directly by commandment and by the example of Jesus Himself to speak to the God who is there, and that God has promised to listen. It's the highest privilege anybody could have. The God who is there, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who is eternal, because if you dial the clock back toward the beginning of the universe far enough, you end up believing in something like an eternal God who is simply there, or matter or energy or particles that are simply there. You're left with no other choices. And the Bible cuts through all that by simply announcing without explanation or justification that God is there, and that He speaks and things happen, and that He rules everything. He rules the mysterious quarks subatomic particles that nobody particularly understands. They're up at Caltech and in other brilliant centers of learning, still trying, still discovering, still pushing against the boundaries of ignorance to dig down into the deepest, deepest structures of what make reality reality. And truthfully, the most brilliant physicist in the world will tell you if you talk to him or listen to him or read his book long enough that he doesn't understand. And the reason he doesn't understand is because he's exploring the creation of a mind so much greater than his own that he, this mind, the mind of God, the person of God, made the physicist and his children and everything in the universe around him. 
And prayer is that privilege of an ordinary human being to speak to the God who is actually present and have the assurance delivered by that God himself that the God not only listens, but he cares. And through the gift of his son Jesus, he enters into an actual, personal, certain, meaning you can be sure of it, relationship with ordinary people like you and me. That's what prayer is. In very simple terms, when you read your Bible, God is speaking to you. He put His will, His character, His plans in writing. He didn't tell you everything He knows, but He told you all that you need to know to have a certain and personal relationship with the God who is there. That's what Bible reading is. God speaks to you. In prayer, you have the privilege, amazing, imagine, to talk back and to tell Him everything that's in your heart. And because he's that big, because he rules not only over quarks, but also over big creatures like whales, as he's in charge of things like orbits and tides, and he's in charge of human beings no matter how small or how powerful they temporarily appear to be, because he's in charge of everything, this God who is there listens because that's how he designed the universe to work. In theological language, you were created for the glory of God. You were created to love Him and to enjoy Him forever. There's no better thing in the world than a personal relationship that works. And I've been able to introduce you as a pastor who've had people take me into their confidence in a few different countries now as a former missionary. I can introduce you to very, very wealthy people who are absolutely miserable because their relationships are broken. And I can introduce you also to desperately poor people, both in the United States and in Mexico, where I grew up, and show you people who have no apparent reason to be happy on earth, and they're filled with joy and peace because their relationships are healed and whole. Well, imagine the joy of having a personal relationship that you know is surging and secure in God's love with God Himself, the God who is actually there. No wonder the disciples walking beside Jesus, seeing him pray day by day, seeing him take time apart to himself, where he literally left them behind. And sometimes he invited a few of them to go with him, and other times he prayed with all of them. What they see is Jesus the man, the one who God promised, who is eternally God, but became a human being to carry our sins they see that man, Jesus, praying constantly. That's why in Luke chapter 11, they asked him to teach them to pray. Look with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. What's going on here? Well, it's first century Judaism. That's what's going on. Jesus is living at one of the high times in rabbinical teaching. There are trusted people within the community of Israel, rabbis who were experts in the Word of God. Some of them knew the Scriptures very well. Most of them knew the Scriptures well and missed Jesus, who the Scriptures told them all about. 
But one thing that was characteristic of the rabbis as they gathered up the disciples and prepared to hand off the baton of their teaching and their tradition, they would teach their disciples a prayer. So you could listen in the day of Jesus, you could listen to a man pray and you would know who his rabbi was. You would know what school, what tradition he belonged to because the thing about prayer is prayer always shows what you believe about God and about life. That's the nature of prayer. You ever heard an overenthusiastic athlete point up to the sky and say, I just want to thank the man upstairs? Well, that tells you something about his understanding of God. It's good that he's reverent, at least grateful enough to realize that there is a power greater than his own, but he's probably a little shallow in his understanding of God, too. This eternal God who's simply there, who speaks everything else into existence, who upholds the nature of reality by the power of his word. I mean, I can't even get my mind around that. I'm not sure what Hollywood would have to do visually to convey that kind of power. And this guy scores a touchdown and he says, I want to thank the man upstairs. Oh, he's telling you something about his understanding, what he believes about God. That's the way it is in prayer. Your beliefs about God, your beliefs about life always come out. And the disciples remembered that John the Baptist had taught his disciples to pray. John the Baptist was a close relative of Jesus, and football season has started again. So if I can use a football analogy, all John the Baptist is is the lead blocker for Jesus. He's the fullback. Jesus is going to carry the ball. He's going to score the touchdown. John the Baptist had gone ahead of Jesus, and he has gathered disciples around him. He has a simple message that people need to repent of their sins and prepare for the one who is coming. And one day, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on to say, basically, I'm out. I'm done. I've cleared the way. I've thrown the block. The path is open. Now I must decrease. I must get off stage. It's his time. But these new disciples of Jesus look fondly back at the time when John was preaching and drawing people out into the desert. And people were marveling at how hard John preached and wondering about this mysterious person who would come behind him to keep all of God's promises and to take away all sins that would make it so that the priesthood of Israel was no longer necessary, so that no priest and sacrifice had to be offered year by year. Someone is coming who is going to make everything different. And John the Baptist, small as he was, unimportant as he was, has taught, they remember, his disciples to pray. So they say to Jesus, how should we pray? We're your disciples. We're your men teach us to pray. And he said to them, verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus is going to go on and teach more about prayer. If, if I were really doing this as well as I could or as well as I think it should be done, I would teach you that section at the same time, but I'm just not, I'm just not that good. 
I'll need two Sundays. And someone told me when I was learning to preach, and you can judge whether they did a good job in teaching me to preach and whether I did a good job in learning, but they said, here's the thing with sermons. Sermons should have a point. You ever heard a sermon without a point? Me too. I've preached a few as well, right? (laughs) There was a point. It just wasn't clear to anyone, including me, what it actually was. Here's the point of this sermon. If you listen to Jesus because Jesus is going to honor their request, ordinary men who were close to Jesus, who had come to believe that He is the Son of God, that He's the one the Scripture spoke of, they are on the way to entrusting themselves to Him to the point that they would rather die rather than denounce Him. That's who these men are. Ordinary men who one by one, given enough time, are going to be persecuted, arrested, beaten, and eventually every single one of them, save one, murdered rather than take the story back. They're that committed to him. That's what they're on on the road to doing. All except for Judas who betrayed him because he never really believed him. They say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, this is what you say. And you read that and you said, that feels like it's missing something. Aren't there some other phrases? Yes, you're thinking of the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. There's a little bit more to it. Why, too? Because Jesus taught this on more than, more than one occasion. This wasn't an in-passing thing. This is the very heart of discipleship. This is, again, to remind everybody what we're talking about and why church should always be exciting whether pastors have a point or not. The Son of God is now going to talk to them and teach them specifically how to speak to the God who is actually there. Not to say hopeful words that go out into the universe and I hope there's some energy, person, or force working out there that will somehow help me. It's not the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. I've scoured that too. I've read that too. Some of the stuff is good. Some of it's ludicrous. This is way beyond that. This is the Son of God who was always with the Father saying, here's how you speak to the God who I personally know eternally is there and listening to you. And he gives them just a few clauses. Say, what in the world are we talking about? Clause? See, your English teacher told you that stuff would matter and here we are. Five sentences, five independent thoughts, and I want to read them again to you, and I, sometimes I ask for interactions, and we have kind of this cacophony. We'll avoid that today, okay? Just think about it. I want to read this again, and I want you to look at all of these different things because it goes from cosmic and the very presence of God to your ordinary lunch table. But I want you to ask yourself what these clauses, what these sentences all have in common. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Look it over. Grammatically speaking, the requests, the sentences themselves were all over the map. 
They cover really all of life. That's the point. What do they all have in common? Can you see it? It's a very subtle thing, but once you see it, it changes your life if you believe it. They're all requests. Do you see that? Every single one of them is a request. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, and a little more added here, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Five clauses, five sentences, they all have this in common. They're all requests. Here's the radical part, and some of you are going to be uncomfortable with this. Prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples upon their specific request, teach us to pray. We are your disciples. We are your men. We're on the way to becoming like you. Most of us here will die for you. Teach us how to pray. When we speak to God, what should that sound like? And what Jesus responds to, responds with, is a list of requests. Prayer is asking God for things. Does that sound wrong? Nine o'clock, there was this wave of revulsion that swept over the congregation. I'm pretty sure somebody looked over in Matthew to see if it was any different. They could prove me wrong. You can't, because it's not. All these are are requests. Five requests. First, Father, what? Hallowed be your name. What on earth does that mean? That takes us into a different time. It's another word. To hallow something is to treat it as sacred, to treat it with great reverence. When the disciples are taught to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, what they are being taught to pray is to ask God for his name to be treated with the utmost respect and reverence. To lift up the name, meaning the character, the very person of God in people's understanding and behavior, to put God above all, to treat Him as the most sacred, important person in the entire universe who alone is to be revered and worshipped in a way that nobody else deserves. Let me ask you, your day-to-day life in Orange County, California, how is God's name treated on a day-to-day basis by most people? Poorly, right? God's name characteristically in American life is really a swear word. It's come to that. God's name, the name of His Son, just an expression of surprise. Or you can ask God to condemn someone. You can ask the God who has the right to judge everyone to damn someone, to condemn them punish them forever. And Jesus says the first thing you should ask God is that His name would be hallowed. And then it says your what? Your kingdom come. Now these are two requests. I told you all Jesus taught us to pray is to make requests of God. These are all requests Jesus says that you should make of God, but please notice not all of these requests are about you. The first two are 100% vertical. 
The disciple of Jesus understands that he has the privilege to come into the presence of God himself, and the only appropriate thing to say or do, if you're welcomed into the presence of the creator of everything that exists, who sustains the universe and all of its untold billions of galaxies by the word of his power that has everything on earth obey him as simply as if it belonged to him, because guess what? It does the only proper response coming to that person, even if you've been told that you are welcome and that you are loved, is to put him and his plans ahead of your own. And these two first two requests, if you think about them carefully, they clash with your heart and they clash with our culture. Because we live in a day that because of technology has given free expression to what every human being has always wanted, to put their name way up there. Your kingdom come. Well, this week, I try not to be a hypocrite, sincerely. I try to practice what I preach, and I try to practice it while I'm preparing to preach. So this week, I've been praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. I've used the very words of Jesus, just like He said, pray this, say this. And I've used his outline, his exact words, and it's made my mind think and spurred me to further personal spontaneous prayer about how what Jesus taught me to ask of God clashes with my day-to-day -day life. Because just like you, I'm told that as a disciple of Jesus to pray and to ask God for his kingdom to come, but the challenging thing this week has been to think about how the kingdom of God clashes with my little empire. Are you aware that you have a little empire? You know why all personal relationships are difficult? Because every personal relationship is built between two emperors. If a family of five exists, as soon as that little one is conscious that they have their own will and their own way, little empires start to be built. No wonder marriage is difficult. No wondering parenting is tough. No wonder people sometimes cry themselves asleep. No wonder you have to watch your back in junior high and high school. You live in a world filled with tiny little tyrants and emperors. And Jesus said, listen, you're speaking to the God of the universe. Here's what you ask him first. May your name, not mine, may your name be revered. When names are spoken, may your name be placed high first, above all, and above mine. You're in charge, not me. Second thing, Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. You have needs. Your Father knows them. Even though you have pressing needs, relax, trust that your Father knows them, and here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to seek not your empire, but His kingdom first. And these first two requests are straight vertical, straight up to God. And then the third clause finally gets down to us. Give us each day our daily bread. And the disciple says, ah, finally we're talking about me. Now listen, if you've spent time in the first two things Jesus taught you to pray, you see yourself at your proper size. You're not afflicted with a big world and a big life and a small God. No.
you have a small life in the presence of a great, big, wonderful, majestic God. And in the confidence that He is the one who can make His name revered, and He is the one that can make His kingdom come, and both of those are written in a Greek tense that points forward to their future fulfillment. In other words, the, ma- the world we're in will not always be the bloody, awful mess that it currently is. Yesterday, I was at the gym briefly. I don't know why people laugh when I say briefly. I guess you can tell. But I'm momentarily on the treadmill, and I'm seeing the news and remembering again that if it bleeds, it leads. And there's a terrible story of someone's child being run down and killed in an accident, and they told all of Southern California. And it's not newsworthy. It's tragic, but there's no public interest in those stories. It's just to get eyes on screens. And then they went to two different funerals, and then they went to the war, and then they went to the collapse of economies not far from here. And I thought to myself, with all the Lord's Prayer running through my mind, truly, Lord, the only thing that will fix this is if your name is hallowed and your kingdom comes. And he's promised that it's going to happen. And in the meantime, this same God who can make his name hallowed and at a time of his own choice by his own will will absolutely make his kingdom come. This same God has told you to tell him, give me my daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Notice the redundancy there. Give us each day our what kind of bread? Each day, daily bread. See the repetition? Here's a little tip. God is not a poor communicator. If he says a thing twice like that, twice in about six words, he has good reason. Think of it like this. Don't you kind of wish God would provide for you about a month or a quarter or maybe even a year at a time? Wouldn't that be great? If on January 1st of 2018, he said, just want you to know, you won't lack for anything all year. I got it all covered. Wouldn't that be great? Why doesn't he do that? Why did he teach us to pray every day for daily bread? Well, I think, it, I, think I can see the reason why in something I did to my dad when I was in high school. When I was in high school, not yet being able to drive a car, I got an interest again in riding my bike. And I'd ridden this, I had this Evil Knievel bike. Some of you don't know who Evil Knievel is, but you should. I had an Evil Knievel bike, and I did my best to kill myself on that bike (laughs) to honor Evil Knievel's own sacrifice and heroism. But now I'm like a freshman in high school, and I can't have a car yet. But I figure I can have a bike, so I started bugging my dad about a bike, and for about a glorious month, we spent time fixing up an old, beautiful bike. And as soon as I got that fixed, I basically said to my dad, peace, and was gone. Why? Because now I've got the bike. And I look back, and I don't remember much that I did on the, bat, on the bike. Many years later, what I remember most fondly is all that time spent with my father figuring things out and him mostly fixing things up. And I think that's why Jesus taught you to pray. When you go to God, speak to Him about your daily provision. This day that you have is the only one you're sure of. 
You don't know about tomorrow, and that's by God's design. Talk to your Father about what you need right now. And then it says, and forgive us our sins. If you spend time in the presence of the God who is there, this eternal God who is love but who is also holy, who is merciful but is also just, if you spend time thinking about the fact that God is absolutely just and He sees and knows everything about you, and no matter what you've done in secret this week, it may have been a secret to everyone except to you and to someone else. The God who made you, He sees and knows all of it, even your inward thoughts. So when you have wicked self-serving thoughts and you're doing the thing that we've been taught to do and keeping the smile on and just pretending that everything's great and inside I hate you, kind of wish you were dead. God sees the interior of your heart. He sees the self-seeking. He sees the kindness that actually hides selfishness. He sees lust. He sees anger. He sees cowardice. He sees selfishness and abuse and neglect. He sees laziness in every single thing that you can do to offend a God who is perfectly holy. He sees it all, which is why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins. We've missed the mark. We've run past the boundary. We've failed by omission and commission, meaning we've done things we shouldn't and things that we should have done before you, God. We've left those things undone. Forgive all of it. And the God who is there mercifully listens. And because it's Jesus teaching you to pray, it's Jesus, this same Jesus that's going to go to the cross. And Jesus himself is going to pray and echo the own prayer he taught his disciples. And he is going to pray in literal agony in Gethsemane. Dripping, the gospels say. Blood. In his agony before the Father. Teaching us the best lesson on prayer, which is not my will, but yours be done. And he would go to the cross for all of those sins, for all of that ugliness. For everything about me in my past, present, and I'm sure my future. All that ugliness that would make you say, I'm not listening to that guy teach the Bible again. You see the way that guy thinks? See what he does? It's all open and exposed to God and the great mercy of Jesus the Savior, the human being who is empathetic and compassionate, tempted exactly as I am. He's going to the cross so that later I can say to the Father, please forgive my sins. And because Christ died and rose in my place, he can absolutely every time. And all the shame and all the guilt is absorbed in Jesus. It's all washed away by his death and resurrection. No wonder he taught us to pray, forgive us our sins. But did you notice this is the one request that has an extra? Did you see that? Forgive us our sins. Don't miss this. What do he say next? For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Of these five requests that we're being told, these are the things that you are to ask God. This is the only one that has something added to it. And this week, because God has a sense of humor, I had a lesson on why. Did you know God has a sense of humor? Why do you think you have a sense of humor? He made you. You can find it in Scripture. 
God laughs. He laughs. Well, this week, because God has a sense of humor, He gave me a chance to put this into practice. It has nothing to do with the church, and I won't tell you what happened, because it doesn't involve any of you. And from the safety of retirement, someday I'll write an amazing book, okay? I'm not sure you'll want to buy it, and I'm not sure you'll want, I'll want you to know that it's published, but I've, boy, I've got a book in me, maybe two, okay? Well, this week, I really got done wrong. I mean, just flat out wrong. Everyone except the person who did it knew that it was wrong. A lot of people talked about how wrong it was. It was super obvious to me that it was wrong. I was embarrassed by it. That's how wrong it was. And I thought that the guy who did it should have been embarrassed too. And I did something that sometimes I thoughtlessly do. I kept waiting for the call or the email or the text message to come saying something like, my bad. And I would say, it's fine. I'm a great guy. I totally forgive you. (laughs) I just love being gracious and hoping people notice, don't you? So I waited for a couple days, and then it dawned on me, this is the kind of guy who tramples over people, and not only is he not calling, he doesn't notice. He didn't care. He's not coming. And I went through all the stages of anger. My mind would go to it, and I'd say, that was wrong. God, you know that was wrong. Where's my email? check again. He still hasn't sent it. Have you done this? And I just stewed for about two days. And then because trying not to be a hypocrite in teaching you this morning, I kept praying the Lord's Prayer. I finally zeroed in. God finally brought my attention to this explanation. Forgive us our sins. That's our request. Here's the assurance we are making, God. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And God didn't audibly speak to me, but after all this time in Scripture and all this time praying, the very words and thoughts that came from the words He taught me, it's as if the Lord said to me, hey, Bruce, what if you just forgive Him? Well, He hasn't said He's sorry. (laughs) What if you just cancel the debt? What if you're just gracious? What if you stop griping about it? Hard week. Why? Because you're in the presence of the great God, the God who is actually there, the God who sees everything. And if you know your sin and you see it on Jesus, there is nothing that you are unwilling to forgive other people because they're just ordinary human beings like you. And I've run roughshod over people just like he did over me. And that was just a simple social thing, just a little awkward embarrassment, just a little bit of social discomfort, just a little bit of wounded pride on my part, if I'm honest. What I've done instead is I've sinned against the great God who made everything, who gave me my very life. And because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I can always come to Him and say, Father, I've sinned. I've run past your boundaries. I've broken your laws. I've treated you like a person of no particular importance. I've treated my opinion as greater than your law. Please forgive me. And by the grace of Jesus, it's all gone. And God will never remind me of those shameful things. 
He's given me a new name. He's given me a new future. He's given me, Jesus said, a new home. And the final request, lead us not into temptation. And that acknowledges we're being told by Jesus that the world is hard and filled with sin. And you're going to be tempted and tested. And there's going to be a solicitation to sin. And one wise Christian from a long, long time ago said, the way I understand this request from God is something like this. God, when I have the desire to sin, grant me that I don't have the opportunity. And when I have the opportunity to sin, give me the grace to not have the desire to do it. That's what it looks like to be guided through life without being led into temptation. This is why Jesus took three disciples with him when he prayed on the night when our eternal destiny was at stake, and he told them, pray so that you don't enter into temptation. And then he went further on ahead, a stone's throw ahead, and he literally, the Son of God, was on his face before his Father, agonizing because his humanity recoiled at what was about to happen to him, and somehow the Son of God knew that all the sins of mortal human beings like me being placed on him was not only not right, it was excruciatingly impossibly to understand painful to pay the price of my salvation. And Jesus prayed in such a way that he was delivered from the temptation to avoid the cross, and that's why you and I can be saved if we trust him. What am I trying to tell you in all this? Let's wrap up. I'm trying to tell you two things. First, this. Prayer exists because God loves us. You are given the opportunity to speak to God because He loves you. Because you may have noticed, I skipped the first and perhaps the most important part of this prayer. Did you see the first word? Luke chapter 11, verse 2, Jesus said, when you pray, say this. What? What's the first word? Father. And before you tune out, let me help you on that. A lot of you have a really tough time in your relationship with God because your earthly father was a disappointment. You hear that God is your father, you can't help it. You know he's different. You know they're separate. But your earthly father was such a disappointment. He was so absent. He was so abusive. He was so neglectful. He was so harsh. Whatever he was, it hurts you to think of God as your father. This is the father you always wanted. This is the father we all want. This is the father that is the hope of every family and every child. This is the courageous, self-sacrificial father. This is the father who is never absent. This is actually the father who never dies, who never leaves orphans, who welcomes people into his family by the death of his own son, who willingly goes to die on the cross for them so that the family of God can grow exponentially. And he can call each one of you his beloved son or daughter. And he would literally suffer the pains of death on, through the work of his son than to lose you. That's your heavenly father, and that's why God gave you prayer, because you can speak to him not as a cosmic tyrant somewhere out there that has to be placated and has to hear just the right words before he would extend you just a little bit of kindness. No, he loves you. 
And when you go wrong and you ask for the wrong thing, he patiently invites you to stay with him and to keep hearing from him in Scripture and keep talking to him in prayer until he lovingly guides you to get it right. And then he will do what he knows is best all along. So keep praying. If I can give you a very specific, for instance, visually, sometimes I've started praying in that direction because I'm just sure that what's over there is amazing. And God being God, God's smarter than I am, but I'm pretty smart and I can see that over there is awesome. So I try to persuade him that this is how I should go and that he should help me get over there. And I keep reading and I keep praying and I keep listening. And because he loves me, sometimes it takes months, often it's taken years. But instead of going over there, I end up way over there instead. And I marvel that all along the way he knew what was best and he patiently put up with me and guided me until he gave me what he knew was the very best thing all along. If it hasn't happened to you, keep praying. Because listen, here's the second thing. Prayer is a primary way. It's not the only way, but it is a primary way that God relates to us. See, you've been invited into a personal relationship, and if I asked you who on earth you admire most, what living person on earth you admire most, and then I told you they've invited you to their personal place, and they've told you they have, they've cleared the day, and they have as much of next Saturday as you want to take, would you show up? Oh, yeah, you'd show up. If you weren't on Instagram yet, you'd open an account just to take the pictures, right? Here you are with this person. You've been invited into the one relationship that will never fail or disappoint you. And a primary way that God deals with you in that relationship is prayer, and He uses it to fulfill His purposes. God knows what He wants, but one of the primary ways, this is the mystery of the relationship, God does some things that He has sovereignly decided to do already, but He does them in response to prayer. And He does it to keep all of His promises. And he does it also because he's a loving father to provide for your needs. I want you to listen to two people from long ago in England. The first is Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher that ever spoke English. He preached in English. In 1882, he preached a sermon called Ask and Have. In this message, he said, Do you know, brothers and sisters, what great things are to be had for asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. Thus, you see the Lord's promises have many fulfillments, and they are all waiting now to pour their treasures into the lap of prayer. Does not this lift prayer up to a high level when God is willing to repeat the biographies of His saints in us, when He is waiting to be gracious and to load us with His benefits? I will mention another truth which ought to make us pray, and that is if we ask, God will give us much more than we ask. He went on to say toward the end of the sermon, asking is the rule of the kingdom. And you think to yourself, you know, I only ask when I'm in trouble. Jesus understands that. All of his parables picture people in trouble. Don't ever be ashamed of coming to your father when he's in trouble. Good dads want to hear from their kids all the time, and especially when they're in trouble. 
The most heartbreaking times I've ever had from as a father is to realize that one of my sons was in anguish and they were too afraid to say anything to me about it. I'm not proud of their pain. I'm not happy that they're in that state, but to be brought into their confidence and tell me, Dad, this is what's really going on. Now we're getting somewhere. There's love and there's trust. It's not so much that prayer is tried and untrue. It's just that it's not tested. George Mueller was another man who ministered in England. He started a ministry primarily to orphans, though he did many other things in very expensive ministries. He started with a handful, and before it was over, George Mueller was caring for 2,000 orphans in Bristol, England in the 1800s at once without, and here's the hallmark of his ministry, he never asked for help financially. He prayed it all in. He specifically said that he wanted a ministry that was funded purely by prayer as a testimony to people who didn't believe that God existed, that great things could be done to serve orphans and to extend the gospel without ever asking another human being for anything. Mueller recorded, generously recorded his life and his spiritual autobiography and his notebooks show that he made 50,000 specific requests in his lifetime, 30,000 of which were fulfilled within 24 hours. My favorite story, I'm glad to have found it recently in print. It's in a book called Fearless Prayer by Dr. Craig Hazen of Biola. It says that on one occasion, the orphans had literally nothing to eat in 1861 in Bristol. So he took the daughter of one of his colleagues, a little girl named Abigail Townsend, and he took her by the hand and he said to her simply, come see what our father will do. And Abigail, Hazen writes, encounters, recounts entering a long dining room with empty plates, cups, and bowls lining the table. All the children of the orphanage were standing around the table waiting for breakfast. What she did not know at the time was that there wasn't a scrap of food in the house. Mueller said, children, you know that we must be in time for school. And he lifted his hand and prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. A few moments later, there was a knock at the door. It was a baker who said to Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at two o'clock and baked some fresh bread and I've brought it. A second knock was heard soon thereafter. This time it was the milkman. Mueller, my milk cart is broken down outside your orphanage. I would like to give the children the cans of fresh milk so that they can empty the wagon and repair it. They thanked the baker and the milkman, and they all enjoyed their breakfast. In Mueller's mind, there was simply no way that God would not do this. That's trusting the Father. I'll tell you more about it next week. But James, the brother of Jesus, said this, You have not because you do not ask. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to keep the appointment tomorrow to talk to you throughout the day. Teach us to put you first, that your name would be above ours, that your kingdom would come and triumph over every empire, that you would give us our daily provision, our bread, and everything else that we need, that you would forgive us our sins as we extend the same grace that you gave us in a small measure to other people who offend us. And we pray that you would walk us through life in such a way that we are kept from overwhelming temptation. Lord, this offering is given to you with gratitude. It's one of those things you've told us to do. 
It's an expression of our trust that you will provide our daily bread and many other great things besides. So we ask that you would receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen.